Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we're halfway through the week, but I'm glad to be back on the air as always. And we're almost at that point where we are uh, pretty much winding down this uh, series on Shays' Rebellion. In case some of you all were wondering, you know, hey, we already had talked about an actual rebellion that took place, that is, an actual movement. But at the same time, we have uncovered a lot of unique um, findings in the aftermath of this incident. So just because a rebellion takes place, it doesn't mean that once it's over, we just put everything to the side and um, assume that, okay, the rebellion took place. Uh, what else is there to learn about this other than the fact that, a re- that an incident occurred? Well, it's not more. It's it's more than just the incident itself. I mean, we have learned the origins behind this incident, and we're still learning um, more information behind the scenes as to um, who who were the contributors to this movement, and whom um, stood up and uh, fought alongside the state and was able to restore order. So, in this next uh, session that we're going to be discussing on Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's Final Battle by Leonard L. Richards. We're going to discuss uh, banner towns and core families. When I think of uh, banner towns, I think of towns that perhaps um, had the greatest turnout for this um, incident. Core families is another word for prominent families that that had a lot of... uh, status in their communities. But when I uh, think of um, prominent families, given that I'm from uh, Virginia and still live in the uh, great state of Virginia, when I tend to think of prominent families, my first thought, the first thought rather that comes to my mind are uh, such families like the Randolphs, um, the Custises, the, um, yes, the Randolphs, the Custises, the Tuckers, uh, other uh, prominent, um, the Lees, um, I, also, I often think of um, the Birds, uh, just to name a few uh, prominent uh, fam and the Carters. You can never forget the Carters, but just to name a, f- a few uh, prominent families in Virginia who own vast amounts of uh, property, not only in Virginia, but um, in what we now know as present-day West Virginia, And when you um, hear about Robert Carter, a.k.a. King Carter, his land holdings stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. So in Massachusetts, yes, there are uh, prominent uh, families who may not hold the same distinctions as the Carters, the Lees, and the Custises, and the Randolphs of Virginia, but there are uh, backcountry people in Massachusetts whom... um, are well known to their communities and who uh, make up an, an elite uh, group of, um, of uh, property holders. While their status may be prevalent in western Massachusetts, in Boston uh, that could be a whole other story because those in Boston are more concerned about catering to the uh, mercantile um, elite from the eastern part of the state. So our first uh, leadoff question will be the following. What was the overall ratio of backcountry towns whom participated in Shays' Rebellion? 
So when we think of like ratio, like how about, you know, one out of every, you know, four people experiencing a particular um, incident or, you know, statistics at one time, for example, said that one out of every five people was diagnosed with a mental uh, condition, mental illness, that is. But in this case, the overall ratio of backcountry towns participating in Shays' Rebellion, um, I'll give you um, some ratio uh, choices. Was it, is it choice one, two out of every four backcountry towns had participated? Uh, choice B, three out of every five backcountry towns participating? Or was it choice C, one out of every three backcountry towns participating? The answer is choice C. One out of every three. So that means uh, when we do the fraction, one-third, that's 33% right there. So 33% of the backcountry towns uh, participated in uh, Shays' Rebellion when you do a one out of every three ratio comparison. Now, the greatest... Uh, number whom participated in uh, one town alone was uh, was in the town of um, Amherst. Amherst um, produced 121 men. Oh, actually, I take it back. Colerain. Uh, l let's uh, rephrase this. I apologize to get my numbers uh, incorrect. Uh, but we know that 121 men turned out in Amherst versus two in nearby Hadley, and then 156 men showed up from Coleraine versus zero in nearby Heath. So what does that tell what should that tell us right there, folks? That just because you live in western Massachusetts, it doesn't automatically mean that you are going to be participating in rebellious activity against the state. So we're going to learn about some families, and not all of these families lived in the same community, but a lot of these, but not some, not so much a lot of them. All of these families who participated, um, yes, some of these families lived in the same communities together. But we're going to figure out here shortly why these families lived together, and I can tell you this much: it had nothing to do with being butt buddies. Let's uh, get that straight. But let's keep in mind why these families whom um, were against uh, what was going on in Boston took matters into their own hands. And yes, it, the, the ratios are very interesting right there that, you know, 121 men are turning out in Amherst versus two in nearby Hadley, for example. I mean, uh, that's uh, quite uh, an interesting comparison, to say the least, when you have a majority of men from one town, and then the, in the neighboring town, there's um, minimal participation. So our next question is the following. Did regulators draw support from families of all economic statuses? Remember, the regulators were the ones who uh, took matters into their own hands to um, stand up to the uh, governing elite to let them know that they did not like how they were being ignored, or they simply did not like how the governing elite were ruling in general. So the question, so the answer to that question is yes. It turns out that uh, regulators, for one, are not confined to one group. 
regulators came from all prominent as well as uh, lower working class families. Was Daniel Shays part of a large extended family? In other words, did Daniel Shays have a broad family living in uh, Pelham? And when I say broad family, we're talking, you know, brother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, aunts, uncles, cousins, that kind of thing. So what do you all think? Uh, did he, was he part of a large extended family? Uh, yes or no? Uh, the answer is no. The only family in Pelham linked directly to Mr. Daniel Shays was his wife and their children. No other immediate or distant family lived nearby. So for years, I think it's fair to say that um, whatever we knew about Shays' rebellion, we would have automatically assumed that, that Daniel Shays' greater family lived nearby, but now we know that's not true. When Daniel Shays took up arms against the state of Massachusetts, he was not joined by a brother, an uncle, or an in-law. Okay, so basically Daniel Shays... From a family uh, point of view, he's taking up arms against the state on his own. No one else from within his family, that is from um, like a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law or any other immediate uh, relative, would have said to him, Hey, Daniel, um, yes, you're, you're, you're not happy with how things are in Boston. Uh, yes, you've still got some outstanding debts to pay, but how do you want to resolve this matter? Well, Daniel took that, those matters onto his own hands. Whereas Daniel Shays um, was a newcomer to Pelham, and he did not have, he was not part of a large extended family, we can say that uh, Job Shatuck of Groton, and we learned about Job Shatuck from a previous uh, podcast, how he had been... Um, on the government's uh, public enemy list uh, when Governor James Bowden was in uh, office. Uh, Governor Bowden um, wanted him um, arrested for uh, citing um, not so much a riotous activity, but activity that uh, kept um, tax collectors from uh, collecting people's taxes, simply in part because Job Shatuck and others did not have the resources to pay um, debts, in other words, outstanding debts. In other words, uh, Job Shatuck did not have hard silver. So, but on the other hand, Job Shatuck of Groton was the complete opposite of Daniel Shays. Shatuck had broad family support. Three of his own immediate family members, being three Shatucks from Groton, joined along in the uh, rebellion, including 12 family members. He had relatives from Pepperell, and Shatuck, Parker, and blood families, and blood, yes, like drawing blood when you get uh, lab work done at the doctor's office, that's how it's spelled, these three families went about forming a solid establishment for insurgency in Groton. You know, when you have families who can form establishments, we like to think of that as a good thing, on the other hand, there are times when it's a not-so-good thing. Of course, one can say that's all circumstantial, meaning it depends on the matter that's at stake. 
But in centuries earlier, like the 18th century, given that that's when uh, Shays' Rebellion took place in the late 18th century, post-Revolutionary War era, were family and kinship ties crucial? Let me let me uh, let me ask you all got ask all of you this. Um, you know we don't have such a thing as suburbia in the 18th century. People are living on living on farms, and there are those who live in cities. But is it fair to say that families really do stick together regardless of whether they live in a rural or urban setting? in the 18th century? Well, the answer is yes. They are all very closely knit. I could take, I could give you all a good example here. There were uh, two New England families, uh, being the Hutchinsons and the Winthrops. They built trading networks by turning to relatives in England and the British West Indies. Well, hey, you know, um, building a trade network isn't going to happen overnight, but if you have the right connections, not just from a business point of view, but if you have family members who live overseas, like in the case with the Hutchinsons and the Winthrops, the greater the connections there are. And by having those connections, they were able to build a successful uh, trading network empire. This uh, same kind of um, family and kinship tie was crucial to backcountry families living in western Massachusetts. I mean, that's not to say that you wouldn't have had that same kind of um, success in Boston or in, um, in the mercantile towns outside of Boston, but in western Massachusetts, where you are largely ignored by those running the government in Boston, you want to do everything you can to make sure that you do form alliances so that when you can find a way to get your word out, it will be made known to those outsiders so that the outsiders will be reminded of, hey, of the fact that, hey, you know, just because we may live 150, 200 miles away, it doesn't mean that what's going on in Boston doesn't impact us. It does. So, yes, it is very important to have uh, strong family and kinship ties, not just for personal um affairs, but for even for business affairs and for political affairs. Well, given that 121 men from Amherst took up arms against the state, which Amherst family led the way? Was it the, um, the Joneses? <laughs> was it the Dickinsons? Or was it the Smiths? The answer is the Dickinsons. There were 19 Dickinson men who, whom took up arms against the state government, including seven men who married uh, Dickinson women, one-fourth of all Amherst rebels, being 25%, were connected in one way or, or another to the Dickinson family. I tell you, folks, when you marry someone, you're not just marrying that person. You could be marrying their family. Well, you're definitely marrying their family, but you are also marrying into uh, other uh, broad connections that not only benefit you in the short term, but long term as well. So we're not just talking one or two um, folks, people. We're talking about, um, in this case with the Dickinsons, uh, 19 Dickinson men took up arms against the state 
and knowing that one-fourth of, of all Amherst rebels whom participated, being 25%, um, that that 25% were connected in one way or another to the Dickinson family. And this is the same Dickinson family that produced a, a famous uh, New England poet by the name of Emily Dickinson from the 19th century. The Dickinsons of Amherst were considered to be one of the town's elite families. Did you hear that, folks? Elite family. That means premier, top of the line. Especially since this family held vast amounts of political power. Ten of the 19 Dickinson men held office of selectmen or state representatives. And at one time, at one time, uh, three men were uh, sons of selectmen, and the selectmen and state representatives often came from the wealthiest 20% of the population comprising large and small Massachusetts towns. So just remember, folks, we don't have to hail from Boston or from the eastern part of the state to be wealthy. We can live anywhere in Massachusetts, and we can still be wealthy, However, um, the government in Massachusetts, though, in Boston, I should say, they have their own uh, separate terms for defining what constitutes being wealthy and what constitutes being um, valued and revered. You know, in the western part of the state, I think the Bostonians view those people as uh, people living on the fringes, but we're coming to realize that, no, they're not living on the fringes. They're actually a lot smarter than uh, what the Bostonians are giving them credit for. How many men out of 121 from Amherst who participated in Shays' rebellion were American Revolutionary War veterans? I'll give you some choices. Was it 75? Was it um, less than 60 or just over 60? The answer is just over 60. 61. The majority of these 61 men were recruited by a fellow named Reuben Dickinson, who was no stranger to fighting wars. I'll give you a little information on Reuben Dickinson. He is, a, he is a veteran of the French and Indian, a.k.a. Seven Years' War. And on April 19th of 1775, the Amherst Patriots turned to him for raising a company of 60 men after the news of the Lexington Alarm had been received. Now, I must uh, r remind you all, those of you who were with me when I did uh, Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, I don't believe that a post rider could have ridden all the way from Lexington to Amherst on the same day. It probably took that person a couple of days before uh, shots were heard around the world, but... On the other hand, that was probably a good thing that the um, that the horse rider or what we call a post rider, aka courier, left a little bit sooner. This way, the people of Amherst have enough notice so that they can be prepared, not only to come to Lexington but to leave people behind who would be able to defend their city should British troops advance further west. Of course, for advancing further west did not happen. But in case some of you all are wondering, where is Amherst located on the map of uh, Massachusetts? Well, uh, Leonard L. Richards, the author of this book, was kind enough to provide us with um, excellent um, map um, 
maps of the state of Massachusetts during um, the uh, rebellion. And so I was able to detect on the actual um, map itself that Amherst is uh, southwest of Pelham. And uh, just uh, Pelham and Amherst are not that far um, apart from one another. They are just west of uh, Worcester. So it would be fair to say if you looked on a map that Boston is to the east, as we all know, and in the, and smack dab in the middle between Pelham and Amherst and Boston. So Boston being the far right, Pelham and Amherst far left, and the center would be Worcester. So there's a little 101 geography for you guys. So Reuben Dickinson um, is obviously very uh, revered, given that he comes from the Dickinson family. And who does he recruit out of this 60-man uh, um, company? Who does he recruit? Does he recruit, um, does he recruit a fellow named Job Shatuck? Does he recruit a fellow named um, Luke Day? Or does he recruit Daniel Shays? He recruits Daniel Shays, who at this time in 1775, does not live in Pelham. He lives in Shutesbury. It turns out that Daniel Shays and uh, Reuben Dickinson would fight together two months later after shots were heard around the world at Lexington and Concord at Bunker Hill. So, on one hand, we can say that it's a small world, after all. I mean, Daniel Shays had to be recruited by someone, and what do we know? He got recruited by a, a Dickinson. Like Luke Day, whom we talked about earlier from a previous podcast, and other former officers of the Massachusetts line, is it fair to say that Reuben Dickinson himself faced severe financial hardships as the Revolutionary War came to an end? Yes, and I don't believe that anybody whom fought in the Revolutionary War from Massachusetts, and that's not to say that other soldiers from other states would have been in the same faced the same hardship, but it seemed like many in Massachusetts were really uh, hit the hardest. Amherst farmers were hit terribly hard. Uh, grain production, let's talk about some interesting number figures here. How about in 1771, the year after the Boston Massacre had taken place, uh, we're not anywhere close just yet to um, declaring our entire separation from England, but in 1771, the uh, price of bushels per taxpayer was 85 bushels. Eleven years later, 1782, one year before the American Revolutionary War officially ends with the Treaty of Paris, that price dropped to 26 bushels in 1782 per taxpayer. That's about uh, that's a huge steep decline. So what about uh, for Reuben Dickinson, well, he does. I mean, for one, he obviously participates in Shays' rebellion, but he gets caught in the um, what do you call it? He gets caught in in the uh, fleeing after they um, leave after they are forced to retreat uh, from the Springfield Arsenal attempt, and uh, Benjamin Lincoln's forces catch uh, Shays's men off guard after the Arsenal incident to where men flee into New Hampshire and what we now know is present-day Vermont. 
Well, it turns out that Reuben Dickinson fled into Vermont, and he settled in a place known as, some would say Thetford, others would say Tetford. And that's where he lived for the rest of his life until he died. Let's learn about another family here. Actually, I take it back. Let's learn about the town of Pelham, where Daniel Shays' family hailed from, meaning that they uh, moved to, rather, I should say. In the town of Pelham, where Daniel Shays' family were newcomers, which family reigned at the top? Well, we know it's not the Shays family, given that they're newcomers. How about the Grays, which included... Um, I found this uh, worth sharing. Uh, two of their uh, of the Gray family members are very important to know, to note about. How about Daniel Gray, who would be the richest man in Pelham? He served as the church deacon to the select man and town moderator, along with group leader Deacon Ebenezer Gray served as the town treasurer for 25 years. So when you have that kind of clout, and when you have that kind of power, even if um, people in the opposite direction where the capital is located don't revere you for who you are, you still can make a name for yourself. And after all, people in western Massachusetts have been doing a lot of things independently, even if it has not meant following the rules that the Bostonians, uh, the ruling um, governing body in Boston, has put into play through that um Constitution of 1780, while yes, it does provide um, some good rights for people, those rights are limited to only those whom they feel are qualified to have any kind of um, legal say or proper say in their government. Now, it turns out that 20 out of 110 Pelham men who marched with Daniel Shays in one way or another were members of the Gray family. The Grays and other Pelham rebels were fierce patriots throughout the Revolutionary War, and the Pelham townsfolk people, they were of a Scots or Scotch-Irish descent. And those whom were of a Scotch-Irish descent were very, very anti-British. And these people's uh, ancestors first arrived to America around 1718. So that means, folks, that uh, in 1718, uh, Benjamin Franklin's 12 years old. Um, George Washington's not even born yet. But Benjamin Franklin would have remembered um, the first wave of, um, anti of um, Scots-Irish people coming into the New World or into America, rather, I should say. But then again, Ben Franklin is a native of uh, Boston, so he's still living in Boston. These um, Scots-Irish people were seeking a better life as they had been ruthlessly exploited by their landlords, whom viewed their subjects below as inferior. And history has proven that um, before the English came to the New World, most notably to establish their uh, first uh, settlement in what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia, the way they went about colonizing people, they started out doing those same practices with the Irish in the same manner that they would do with the, um, the Indians, not only in Virginia, but elsewhere um, throughout the other uh, colonies that they um, made uh, established settlements in. 
So this inferiority practice is not something that happened overnight in the new world. It's a, it was a practice that was adopted and put into place in Europe, most notably in Ireland, given that, the, that uh, England had uh, control over Ireland under the, uh, Act of Union, under the 1707 Act of Union. How many uh, families, uh, now moving on to another uh, town, we're going to go to West Springfield. How many families comprised uh, West Springfield? Was it more than three? Was it five or um, right around three? Uh, the answer is right around three. Out of 141 men who took up arms against the state, 26 were connected by blood or marriage with these um following family members, uh, 26 being that were connected by blood or marriage, that was with the Day family, 24 with the Leonards, and 15 with the Elys. The most prominent of all men from West Springfield was a Colonel Benjamin Ely. He was one of the wealthiest landowners, and West Springfield, it turns out, was much wealthier than Amherst and Pelham combined together. West Springfield uh, bordered along the Connecticut River, and because, it, because this town bordered along the Connecticut River, it became the main transit point for trade. So anytime you, um, your town is right along the river, that is uh, significant because you, uh, you have access to goods coming in, and you also have the ability to ship goods out of, um, out of your town to go to other destinations. Um, most notably at this time, it would be um, within to other parts of the state. Now, the um, well-to-do landowners in western Massachusetts were more supportive of the rebellion versus neighbors whom were poor off financially. Now, here's another um, misconception that had been the opposite for years that we have now been able to uh, debunk. You know, when people think of rebellion, they often tend to think of those who are poor off. And while, yes, those who are poor and who don't have a say in their governments do have um, the ability to protest, they do, have, they do have the ability to find ways to mobilize in getting their word out, but we should be reminded here in the post-revolutionary war era that the well-to-do uh, landowners in western Massachusetts will be the ones that make the greater noise. How so? Because it's not so much the, the wealth they attain and possess, it's the families that have married into one another that allow them to have greater mobilization efforts. How many families uh, were central to Shays's rebellion from Waitley? The answer is, uh, I'll, I'll give you some choices. Was it five? Was it three? Was it more than five or two? The answer is two. These families were the Graves and Smith families. Fifty-five out of 76 men from Waitley were connected to the Graves' and Smith families. Oliver Graves, one of a few town elders whom participated in the rebellion, 
He was a selectman during the Revolution, along with serving in the First Provincial Congress. He ranked in the top 20% of town taxpayers. Anytime you rank in the top 5, 10, or 20% of town taxpayers, uh, you are uh, of good status in your community. Now, what I found interesting about um, the people of Waitley, those who had uh, participated, you know, at first they start out taking up arms against the state, but something changed. Between May and June of 1787, the majority of the leaders from Waitley did a complete 360. They started out as rebels, that is, taking up arms against the state, and instead they became the, head, they became the primary suppliers to General Benjamin Lincoln's army. That, to me, is a big, complete 360. But who would have been, who would have been the biggest supplier of um, General Benjamin Lincoln's army? None other than Mr. Gad Smith whom would be one of Waitley's wealthiest men, whom ranked in the top 5% of town taxpayers. Gad Smith uh, was a, a well-to-do uh, local merchant, let's put it this way. He was a big uh, supplier of rum. And of course, when I think of rum being shipped into colonial America, I tend to think of it coming from the Caribbean, or most notably the West Indies. But I will say this, maybe it's fair to say that the men from Waitley, maybe they had reasons at first to take up arms against the state. But they must have somehow seen this uh, rebellion getting out of control to where, if they weren't careful, that perhaps they knew they could be, um, they had the potential to burn bridges with those whom were of, whom were either neutral or who were on the opposite side. Perhaps it's fair to say that uh, Gad Smith, who knows, we don't know this, but maybe he could have had some connections in Boston. That's all speculation. But the bottom line is, is that um, Gad Smith um, obviously has enough respect for Benjamin Lincoln, and he also has enough respect to know that, okay, if I do anything if my men, um, if, if the men in Waitley take up arms against Benjamin Lincoln and hurt him to the point where he could die by means of uh, violence, then I myself could lose my reputation and run the risk of getting um, executed. So I think to me, for the way I see this is that this was definitely a big 360 turnaround, but it also may have, um, this could have been a sign of where um, men from Waitley may have come to their senses and realized that taking up arms against the state may not have been the best uh, long-term solution um, to this uh, problem that had been a, that had been evolving over time. I want to talk about two people right here. Most of us wouldn't know who they are, but they are important to, to discuss. Who are Colonel Hugh McClellan and Major William Stevens? To me, they sound like everyday people. On one hand, they could be, but they um, are um, military men. They are Revolutionary War vets. Colonel Hugh McClellan was a Revolutionary War hero. As for Major William Stevens, 
He was a former artillery officer. Both men hailed from Coleraine, or what? Uh, it's an it, Coleraine is a town in Ireland, but I don't know if any of you all who uh, listen to my podcast from Ireland, um, I don't know if it's pronounced Coleran over there, but uh, but I'm under the assumption that it's Coleraine. Uh, Coleraine, from what I uh, learned in this book, uh, that town was established in Massachusetts in the year 1743, located north of Waitley. Now, w- what dilemma did both of these men uh, confront? Well, for starters, they were placed in awkward um, situations. Major Stevens had just opened a store in Coleraine, and Colonel McClellan obtained property to where he had just barely qualified in the top 20% of town taxpayers. To us, that may not seem like a big deal, but at the same time, what about a a rebellion that's... um, that's inevitable. How do you go about uh, taking a side that will either make or break your uh, status in the community, depending on just how many people are participating? Well, as I said earlier, we know that 156 men from Coleraine showed up in, in, um, in taking up arms against the state. So that's a lot of men. I don't know the uh, exact population of Coleraine at this time, but 156 men taking up arms, yeah, that's a big deal from one uh, town. So for uh, Colonel McClellan, he started out in favor of closing the courts. But as time went along and violence escalated, he switched sides. He went about serving under General William Shepard, whom we had discussed from a previous podcast. And why is General William Shepard important? Because he helped uh, lead the defense, um, he helped lead the defense of um, the Springfield Arsenal, and whom else is at the Springfield Arsenal, defending um, defending the arsenal, so that it doesn't fall into the uh, hands of the rebels. None other than um, Major um, William Stevens. Major William Stevens. His duties involved directing the cannon fire at this battle. So, yes, both men started out on the opposite side, but as violence escalated, they knew that they had no other choice but to defend the state, in large part because, for one, they, they loved their state, but they also didn't want to see their state go um, into complete anarchy, where... Perhaps Massachusetts may not even be a functioning state. It's one thing to remove your governor, but if you don't have any kind of um, government functioning, even if it's not the the best and it's not the most likable, then yes, you do have nothing but anarchy. Do you think many of these rebels wanted anarchy? I'm coming to realize that maybe they don't. They just want their voices heard, but at the same time, this is a matter of uh, not just of a regional security, but the way I, I see it now is that it's a matter of national security. Which non-regulator town produced a decent number of men in defending the Supreme Judicial Court meeting located at Springfield 
September 1786, which also included defending the Springfield Arsenal come February 1787. Which non-regulator town? In other words, you didn't have a, a group of men taking up arms against an um, elite governing body. Now, of course, we must, I'll give you uh, some choices here. And this is, first off, it's confined to uh, western Massachusetts. Is it choice A, Pittsfield? Choice B, Agawam? Choice C, Monson? Or choice D, Northampton? The answer is Northampton. Northampton um, amassed or um, brought together 108 of its men to take up arms on behalf of the state. So, had it not been for these, for this uh, non-regular regulator town that um, assembled men to defend the uh, Springfield Arsenal as well as the uh, spring, the uh, judicial court meeting that took place in September of 1786, um, who knows if the Springfield Arsenal could have been secured? Who knows if um, if court would have, if court itself could have ever been held? Uh, who? Who's to say that maybe another neighboring town would have uh, would have come to the um, rescue, but maybe not produce the same number, being over a hundred men? Now we're um, let's let's pay attention to this question here, folks. Were a majority of the men in Western Massachusetts under neutral status during Shays's Rebellion? I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, how could a majority of men in western Massachusetts be neutral when it sounds like so many men, especially from Colerain, Amherst, Waitley, um, West Springfield, you know, so many men coming from those towns in particular, and of course, you know, you could have had people coming from Monson, um, Agawam, you could have had people coming from uh, Hadley, even though there was a small turnout from Hadley, the bottom line is you still had people coming, uh, and then you got Worcester as well. So how could anybody, in the eyes of most of you all, my listeners, think that uh, there are a majority of men under neutral status during this rebellious um, time, or let alone rebellious incident? Well, believe it or not, folks, the answer is yes. It's crazy for me to say yes, but that's the truth. I mean, that's how author Leonard L. Richards has put it. For one, I find it crazy because um, hostilities were everywhere to be found during this time, both big and small. I mean, it's bad enough that you've got people uh, in western Massachusetts. It's, it's not a bad thing that they are very upset with how um, the government in Boston is um, being operated. But at the same time, they're also upset that, the, that those in power in Boston have not done a better job of uh, reaching out to uh, people living 50 miles or more uh, away from the um, from the mercantile um, ruling elite system. But General Benjamin Lincoln and one of his assistants really um, were able to base their findings on two factors as to why more um, men in western Massachusetts remained neutral. Number one, the rebel leaders. Did many of these rebel leaders lack prestige, command presence, 
do you think many of those men lacked uh, prestige as well as command presence? Their intentions might have been good, but they did not have the same prestige as, say, a General Benjamin Lincoln or a George Washington. They didn't have the same prestige as a Marquis de Lafayette or a Nathaniel Green. I'm talking here Revolutionary War leaders, folks. But let's think about it. Yes, Daniel Shays served in the American Revolution. Yes, he earned his rank as high up as he went from sergeant to colonel. But he's no George Washington. Yes, he was given a um, prestigious sword by the Marquis de Lafayette. But yet he, um, he sold it because of uh, financial um, circumstances that were beyond his control that he was trying to... Um, a race of debts on, and of course, as we all know, Daniel Shays owed debt to uh, creditors in his own community. And there again, when we think of creditors and debtors, we tend to think of two parties from foreign places. But it turns out, even in Shays's rebellion, creditors and debtors were all linked together, from regardless of communities they lived in. But. The other big part for the rebel leadership was rallying men outside their hometowns. So if if I'm from West Springfield, how can I expect to rally men coming from Monson, Pittsfield, or let alone um, Agawam, um, Deerfield, Sheffield, just to name a few places in western Massachusetts? How would I be able to... Um, entice those men to come along. Sure, I might get five out of 20 at best, meaning 25% right there if you do the math in terms of uh, fraction ratio, but it's one thing to um, lure men from your own hometown, but it's very hard to attract men from outside their, outside where you live because not everyone shares the same ideals. Okay, if that's um, challenging enough, what do you think could have been the second factor? What institution is vital in securing... Um, we often think of this phrase, church, school, and home. How about uh, church? And who's in charge of the church? The clergy. Clergy, a.k.a. the church leaders, ministers... They were the ones that uh, pretty much kept the communities that were not involved in Shays' rebellion together. These ministers were the ones that had close ties with their congregations, which allowed them to maintain or order in the greater community as a whole. The stronger presence of order meant less likelihood of church members rebelling against their community, including the sanctuary. And what I mean by sanctuary, a permanent place of worship. And we need to keep in mind, folks, that, um, you know, all towns in the 18th century, well, I could be wrong on this. I know that leading up to 1775, just to go backwards, just for a brief uh, moment here, Boston had 14 churches. So Boston is very uh, diverse with its uh, religious, um, with its, uh, religious um, practices course you go to Virginia you're only going to find one church the Anglican Church the Church of England 
Religious diversity is not uh, tolerated very well in Virginia, but I think it's fair to say even in the, in the post-revolutionary war era, the, the majority of uh, smaller communities, most notably in western Massachusetts, are only going to have one church per town. So by having that one church in town per each town, the greater the likelihood that the minister and his um, other fellow clergymen will be able to um, maintain a strong sense of cohesiveness, a strong sense of unity amongst their uh, communities, amongst their community as a whole, to prevent church members from doing the unthinkable. I mean, yes, maybe one or two could rebel, but you also better hope that if one or two rebel, that the church minister himself can have a good meeting with those uh, particular uh, congregants to talk them out of it, because if not, then maybe those uh, fellow members need to be expelled from their community. Those whom rebelled and took up arms against the state came from unified cultures, where everyone stood on equal ground regardless of matter at stake. Okay, so there you have it. The Dickinson family was on the same page. The Graves, the Smith families from Waitley, just to name a few. So when you have families that um, are of prominent status in their communities, they're going to stick together regardless of what's at stake. The town's uh, supporting regulation were not based on rich versus poor or creditor ver versus debtor. And I think we've already established that knowing that Daniel Shays, yes, he experienced finan severe financial hardships after the war ended, just like other fellow um, officers of the Massachusetts line did. But remember, creditor versus debtor wasn't confined from one separate town to another. It was all linked together per each town. General rule to all of this is that people either move together as one, as one entire cohesive unit, or they stayed put by remaining neutral. So if you obviously weren't happy with something and wanted to get out, then everybody whom was together in the family moved as one cohesive as one entire cohesive unit. But if you stayed put, you by remaining neutral, you stayed put. So in other words, if you weren't interested in taking up arms or had no reason to take up arms and you lived in Hadley, then you're going to stay put. But if you are um, living somewhere else and not happy, then yes, you will have more reason to want to move and be a part of something that's broader and greater to your conviction. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here uh, tonight, folks. And uh, as always, uh, it's always good to be on the air with you all. And I'm glad to know that so many of you all have been following me for quite some time, and I urge you all to continue to do so. When I'm back on the air again next, we're going um, to discuss what's called reverberations. In other words, the um, long-term outcome effects of this uh, rebellion. Although it does seem like we already are learning about um, long-term outcome effects. But if I tell you any more about what we're learning uh, what we'll be learning about next when I'm on the air again, there may not be a point in even podcasting it to begin with. But nonetheless, thank you for your time.
and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care and stay safe for now.